I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Welcome to this podcast of The People's Pharmacy. You can find previous podcasts and more information on a range of health topics at peoplespharmacy.com. Successful treatment requires an accurate diagnosis. What happens when a doctor as a patient gets misdiagnosed? This is The People's Pharmacy with Terry and Joe Graydon. Dr. Stephen Horowitz is a retired academic neurologist. When he began experiencing scary neurological symptoms on vacation, he went to the emergency department. There were multiple mistakes leading to a misdiagnosis that could have left him paralyzed. If a doctor can be misdiagnosed, how can the rest of us protect ourselves? When is it appropriate to seek a second opinion? One of the country's leading advocates for improving diagnosis has ideas on how to avoid such mistakes. Coming up on The People's Pharmacy, learn how to prevent diagnostic disasters. In The People's Pharmacy Health Headlines, there's growing evidence that COVID-19 can produce a wide range of health problems. Pneumonia was among the first to be identified, but inflammation, heart complications, blood clots, kidney failure, and neurological problems are not uncommon. Stroke, seizures, confusion, and movement disorders are more common than you might imagine. Italian researchers are also reporting that men may suffer erectile dysfunction as a long-term COVID-19 consequence. Researchers are still learning about long COVID. That's the name that's been given to symptoms that persist weeks or months after people seemingly recover from the worst of COVID-19. A team of scientists from Geneva tracked around 669 people who tested positive for the coronavirus. Most were never so ill that they required hospitalization. Two-thirds had no prior health problems. The average age was 43. Even after they appeared to recover from the acute attack, about one-third complained of long-lasting symptoms such as breathing difficulties, cough, fatigue, and a loss of taste or smell. The authors conclude that COVID-19 can persist and result in prolonged illness. Another study of long haulers also published in the Annals of Internal Medicine reports on COVID patients discharged from Michigan hospitals. Two months after leaving the hospital, many of these patients were still combating shortness of breath and cough. Many had trouble going back to work, and almost half reported mental health problems associated with long COVID. Like the Geneva physicians, the Michigan doctors conclude that adverse events long after infection with SARS-CoV-2 are common. Research into this post-COVID condition will be required, along with effective treatment programs. An article in the Journal of Korean Medical Science calls into question the idea that six feet of separation is all that's necessary to prevent transmission of SARS-CoV-2. A high school student caught COVID-19 in a restaurant. Her exposure to the infector was at a distance of 21 feet for only five minutes. The researchers went back to the restaurant and recreated the exact conditions of the original exposure. 
They discovered that the flow of air from the air conditioning system allowed droplets containing virus to land on the student's face. Genome sequencing proved that the patient's COVID virus infection was identical to the infector. The authors concluded that airborne transmission of the virus can occur at distances greater than six feet if there is direct airflow from an infected person in an indoor setting. The Mediterranean diet has been shown to have a number of health benefits for otherwise healthy people. A new study from Spain compared a modified Mediterranean diet to a low-fat diet in patients who had had a heart attack. Over a 1,000 patients were randomized to one of the two diets. The Mediterranean diet group was encouraged to consume at least four tablespoons of olive oil daily. They were also supposed to eat at least two servings of vegetables, one serving of salad, and three or more servings of fresh fruit daily. On a weekly basis, this group of volunteers was also supposed to eat at least three servings of legumes, three or more handfuls of nuts and seeds, and three or more servings of seafood. They were also supposed to cook with sofrito at least twice a week. This is a sauce made of tomato, garlic, onion, aromatic herbs, and olive oil. These participants were told to cut back on red meat and avoid sugar, chips, sugared beverages, and commercial baked goods. The Mediterranean diet produced more flexible blood vessels. There was also a dramatic reduction in damage to the endothelium or lining of the blood vessels. And that's the health news from the People's Pharmacy this week. Welcome to the People's Pharmacy. I'm Terry Graydon. And I'm Joe Graydon. It's estimated that as many as a million Americans are harmed each year by medical errors. The majority are caused by diagnostic failures. When people are misdiagnosed, they're likely to get the wrong treatment. That can lead to lasting harm, especially if the underlying condition is a serious medical problem like pulmonary embolism, cancer, or stroke. You'll hear from two experts on today's show. They both happen to be neurologists, and they're both very concerned about serious misdiagnoses that could lead to paralysis or death. In the first case, the patient, Dr. Stephen Horowitz, is a doctor himself. That probably saved his life because he recognized that the diagnosis he was given was incorrect and he knew how to get an accurate second opinion. The second neurologist is Dr. David Newman-Toker. He's one of the country's leading advocates for reducing medical errors. He's the immediate past president of the Society for Improving Diagnoses in Medicine and director of the Johns Hopkins Armstrong Institute Center for Diagnostic Excellence. The sound quality of today's show is not what we would like due to some deficiencies in our home studio recording, but we think you'll find the content interesting. 
We're talking today with Dr. Stephen Horowitz. He is a retired academic neurologist who continues to teach medical students as an adjunct clinical professor of neurology at the Tufts University School of Medicine. He's also on the teaching faculty of the Maine Medical Center. And today we are talking with Dr. Horowitz about a story he told in the Washington Post. Welcome to the People's Pharmacy, Dr. Steve Horowitz. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. Dr. Horowitz, you have written a powerful account of your experience with a misdiagnosis in the Washington Post. Now, the outcome was different for you than it might have been for someone else because you are a neurologist, a highly trained health professional. Can you tell us what took you to the emergency room back in April of 2018, please? Sure. I have a daughter who lives in California on the San Francisco Peninsula, and I visit there several times a year. And oftentimes when I visit, I go for a bike ride. I borrow my son-in-law's bike. Um, I've done it many times before. The handlebars on the bike are probably an inch or two lower than my normal handlebars. I went for a bike ride with a friend of mine, about 15 miles. It was an uneventful bike ride, and I felt fine afterwards. But three or four hours later, uh, in the late afternoon, I started experiencing a pain in the back of my neck. The pain and then numbness and tingling radiated down my arms. I knew that this, therefore, was a neck problem, probably because of the lower handlebars. My neck was extended more than usual. Um, That was on a Thursday. Uh, Things got worse on a Friday. And on a Saturday morning, uh, my daughter took me to the emergency room of one of the major medical centers in the area. And what happened there? Well, I went in, I told them I was a neurologist. I told them I thought I had a neck problem because of the uh, hyperextension during the bike ride. I told them that I thought I needed uh, an MRI of the cervical or the neck spine and that I was competent to read it. I also told them that uh, several years before I'd had a back infection following an innocuous uh, dermatological procedure, and that I'd had a a minor medical procedure uh, about 10 days before the bike ride. And so I was concerned about having an infection on top of everything else. I asked them specifically to draw some bloods that included uh, two markers that, if they were positive, would show evidence of inflammation. One of them is a C-reactive protein, and the other one is the SED rate, which they did. Well, it's, it sounds like you gave them all the information they would have needed to make a diagnosis. What happened next? Well, they drew the bloods. The bloods came back in about an hour. Uh, I didn't know the results. They never told me the results. They did. Uh, they called in a spine consultant. Uh, their spine service is run by orthopedics. So this was an orthopedic resident, house staff officer, I think. And he examined me. And the key points about the importance of an examination in uh, a possible cervical spine injury is that the exam is crucial and that if there's evidence of spinal cord or nerve root compression, 
that's really important in terms of dictating uh, the possibility of surgery. No matter how severe the findings are on an MR scan, if there's no clinical evidence of spinal cord or root compression, you don't operate. And so he did a totally incompetent exam. And the Wait, exam whoa, whoa, was, whoa, whoa. This is a specialist. You're a neurologist. You were able to say incompetent. What was it that was incompetent? <laughs> well... Amongst uh, the various uh, parts of the exam that are important are testing the reflexes. For that, you need a reflex hammer. It's equivalent to using a stethoscope to uh, examine the heart and, uh, and the lungs for possible disease there. He didn't have a reflex hammer. He said, I don't need one. I don't own one. He used the back of his hand. He then forgot to test for one of the essential abnormal reflexes that would occur, and if positive, would indicate that there was some spinal cord injury. That's called the Babinski sign. When I said to him, you didn't test for the Babinski sign, he did so. He did so using a stethoscope, and he did it incorrectly. So I'm thinking to myself, why would a spine consultant have a stethoscope and not a reflex hammer? I'm not trying to suggest that a stethoscope isn't an important tool, but in this context, it's virtually useless. There are only rare conditions uh, involving the spinal cord for which a, uh, a stethoscope would be relevant. M much more important is a reflex hammer. He didn't have it. He didn't test any of my sensations other than to use his finger to touch my feet and my arms to see whether or not my touch sensation was intact. He didn't even have a pin. He didn't have a tuning fork. He didn't test for any other modalities uh, that are necessary to determine whether or not there is um, spinal cord dysfunction. So, Dr. Horowitz, tell us, what was the diagnosis, what was the recommendation, and what did you do next? Well, they told me that, that I had advanced uh, cervical spine disease. That was um, evident from the MRI. But one of the key features is that there was a mass behind the cervical spine canal. They called that a hematoma. They did not give me intravenous contrast material during the MRI. And had they done that, that mass would have been suspected. It wouldn't have been absolutely diagnosed, but it certainly would have been suspected to be uh, an infection or an abscess. They had the blood results of these inflammatory markers an hour before I had the MRI. So they had ample time to tell the, uh, the technicians in the MR suite to give me an injection of a contrast material called gadolinium. But they didn't do that. Nor, nor did they inform me that these uh, results were abnormal. So... There were a lot of missed opportunities here, and they discharged you. What happened then? Well, I told them I lived in Maine, and that's 3,000 miles away. And they said, uh, okay, uh, you're discharged. They gave me some uh, pain medications, an anti-inflammatory agent, a patch to put on the back of my neck, all of which was useless. And they said, Joe, go check in with your spine surgeon within two weeks. If you were going to stay in California, we'd refer you to our spine surgeon uh, in two weeks. 
So this was on a Saturday. I went home on a Monday. I was scheduled. I had to fly from San Francisco to Boston because there are no direct flights to Maine. It's a long flight. It's the second longest flight in the country. I think the longest flight is from Seattle to Miami. But this is the second longest flight in the country. It's about 3,000 miles. And I flew home for the first time. I flew first class because I was really scared and I was getting worse. And my brother came with me. And uh, just in case something happened while I was on the plane. And uh, he then turned around and went back to San Francisco. And my wife picked me up at the, at Logan Airport with a car service. Ordinarily, I would have taken a bus. And we went back to uh, our home in uh, in Maine, just north of Portland. Dr. Horowitz, you got home to Maine. You're still not doing well. How did you get an appropriate diagnosis? How did you discover what they had missed? Well, I got home very late on that Monday night because of the time difference. On Tuesday morning, I went online to the chart, my medical chart, and I saw the numbers for these inflammatory markers. The C-reactive protein was 30 times normal. The SED rate was two and a half times normal. I had too many white cells and in a particular type of white cell that indicated that there was an infection going on. And I said to my wife, we've got to go to the emergency room. And we went right to the main medical center emergency that day. They admitted me. And? And then two days later, they operated on my neck and they fused it. And they found that the mass in the back of the spinal canal was uh, an abscess, a collection of pus. So I was then on uh, long-term intravenous uh, antibiotics for, I think, six weeks. You're listening to Dr. Stephen Horowitz. He's a retired academic neurologist who continues to teach medical students as an adjunct clinical professor of neurology at the Tufts University School of Medicine. He's also on the teaching faculty of the Maine Medical Center. After the break, find out what might have happened to Dr. Horowitz if he hadn't known how to get a correct diagnosis. Once he recovered, he contacted the hospital and volunteered to give a presentation on correcting the diagnostic mistakes. How did they respond? We'll find out what progress has been made on addressing mistakes in diagnosis over the last 20 years. You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. The People's Pharmacy podcast is supported in part by Cocovia Memory Plus. Cocovia cocoflavanols support both cardiovascular health and cognitive function by promoting healthy blood flow, transporting oxygen and nutrients to vital organs and muscles, including your heart and brain. Cocovia Memory Plus has 750 milligrams of cocoflavanols, the plant-based nutrients from fresh cocoa that have been proven to help boost memory. Cocovia Memory Plus is backed by four clinical trials that demonstrate improvement in three different aspects of memory, long-term memory, spatial memory, and word recall. The studies show improved brain function in just eight weeks. You can try the benefits of Cocovia Memory Plus with a 25% discount off your first month. Use the code 
PEOPLES 25. To get the full benefits, take it daily for eight weeks. Cocovia is offering People's Pharmacy podcast listeners a 10% discount on subscriptions. That code is PEOPLES10. Learn more at cocovia.com. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Cocovia Memory Plus, a cocoflavanol supplement backed by four clinical studies that show significant improvement in three different aspects of memory. More information at cocovia.com. Also by Verizana, an analytical laboratory providing home health tests for hormones, gut health, and the microbiome, now with an annual health club plan. Online at V-E-R-I-S-A-N-A dot com slash health dash club. How do hospitals deal with medical mistakes? Some make an effort to inform the patient what happened, apologize, and make amends. Others, however, obfuscate and circle the wagons. Our guest is Dr. Stephen Horowitz. He's a retired academic neurologist on the teaching faculty of the Maine Medical Center. Now, Dr. Horowitz, you're a neurologist. You had a pretty good idea what this might be and how serious it might be. But people who aren't doctors don't know. So please tell us what could have happened if you were an ordinary patient without a medical degree well, who I, had this misdiagnosis. If I hadn't checked my chart online and I, I, I would have I was starting to get to get weak and I was starting to get unsteady. And given the severity of the problem in the in the neck, uh, I could have been quadriplegic, paralyzed in all four extremities. And one of the uh, spinal cord compression levels was high. So that might have damaged uh, uh, innervation to my diaphragm, and I might have been on a ventilator. That's pretty grim. So basically what you're saying is because you are a neurologist, you were able to figure out what was going wrong. You were able to get to the emergency department, have emergency surgery, and how are you doing today? I'm back to normal. It took months. And I must tell you, there was a fair amount of uh, PTSD during this uh, recovery period. I, I, it was hard for me to conceive, even myself as a neurologist, that a, that a simple bike ride could produce such a catastrophe. Well, speaking of a catastrophe, these kinds of medical misdiagnoses occur quite frequently. Most people wouldn't be as capable as you were in discovering the, the mistakes, but you didn't stop there. You actually went back to that hospital, that is to say, not physically, but you contacted that hospital and you said, wait a minute, there were some problems and you wanted to follow up, not to sue them, but to educate them. What happened? Well, they sent me a survey. <laughs> you know, everybody does surveys now. They sent me a survey and said, well, tell us about your medical care. And so I filled out the survey, and then I enclosed a, a, a lengthy letter to the CEO of the of the facility, and I said, this survey doesn't do justice to the type of care I had, and I described in detail what I've just told you and waited for a response. It took three months 
for this facility to respond to me. And when and when the response came, it didn't come from a physician. It didn't come from anybody from the spine service. It came from a patient service manager. And and she wrote back and uh, she said, well, uh, the the uh, spine consultant examined you to the best of his ability. Uh, we apologize for not giving you a timely access to the MRI. And they didn't mention anything about the uh, fact that they completely missed uh, a major league infection. That seems like a big oversight. I thought so. So I wrote them back and I said, uh, here, here are the problems that you didn't address. And I'd be willing to come out there and talk about it. At that point, I didn't see any advantage in suing because the damages were relatively minor. I was recovering. I I was getting back to my my physical activity, and I didn't ever raise the possibility of of suing them at all. So I said, you know, it'll, I've spent my whole career teaching. I loved it. And I said, this would be therapeutic for me, and this would be educational for them. How often do they have somebody with a serious medical problem in his own specialty that could talk about it? So I said, I'd be willing to come and speak to the emergency room staff, the spinal service staff, medical students. I even offered to donate a reflex hammer to the spine service. <laughs> Did they take your offer? No. And there's a bit more to the story. This institution has a specific program for communication and resolution and has a uh, uh, somebody who is tasked with that activity. And I didn't know that. And they never, the CEO and the, and the manager never sent my complaints to this person. So about a year and a half later, I'm sitting in my car on a Saturday afternoon, and I hear this person on the radio. And I couldn't believe it. And so... I contacted her. I called up the hospital. She and I exchanged several telephone conversations and emails. And I said, I want to come out there. She thought at first that that was a good idea. And and then she wrote back and said, we don't really have the capability of doing that. We don't really know how to address the situation that you offered. And that was a year ago. Uh, And she said, don't give up on me yet. And I'm thinking at the time that she was going to work on it and see if we could accomplish anything. And I haven't heard from her in virtually a year. Wow. Have you heard anything since your article in the Washington Post? No. And Dr. Horowitz, what about patients? What should they take away from your story? Be careful. (laughs) If it turns out that you think that there's a real problem, you might have the opportunity to go somewhere else. You might have the opportunity to consult with other physicians, your your own private physician or at another institution if you feel that uh, things are unsatisfactory. That's basically what I did. And I can say that that was obviously very helpful for me. I can imagine that would also be helpful for them. If they think they're wrongly treated, if they think that there's an inadequacy, speak up. Well, Dr. Horowitz, we are very glad that you did. Our listeners will be able to read your story if they haven't already. We'll link to it on the website. 
and we want to thank you very much for talking with us on the People's Pharmacy today. Well, thank you very much for offering me this opportunity. You've been listening to Dr. Stephen Horowitz. He's a retired academic neurologist and adjunct clinical professor of neurology at Tufts University School of Medicine. We turn now to Dr. David Dumentoker. He's professor of neurology at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Welcome back to the People's Pharmacy, Dr. David Newman-Toker. Thanks so much for having me back, John Terry. Dr. Newman-Toker, when you were last on the People's Pharmacy, we heard you say that diagnostic errors are the most common, most catastrophic, and most costly medical errors, both for society and for individual patients. Now, We've just heard from Dr. Stephen Horowitz, um, a colleague in the sense that he's also a neurologist, and he shared a, a series of really extraordinary medical errors that could have led to his death or his paralysis. And had he not been a neurologist, he might not have realized what was going on. How can these kinds of errors still be happening? Unfortunately, Joe, the reality is that we still haven't gotten a handle around how to solve the problem of diagnostic error. So for your listeners, medical errors harm somewhere between half a million and a million probably people a year in the United States, seriously, death, permanent disability, that sort of thing, maybe even more. And the lion's share of that is attributable to diagnostic errors. And there are many, many causes of this, but Dr. Horowitz's story is a very good example of how failures in our ability to do good diagnosis at the bedside are contributing to our inability to identify these uncommon but really important dangerous conditions that people sometimes have. And when we miss them, patients can end up suffering tragic consequences. Dr. Newman-Tucker, the problem of medical error and the problem of diagnostic error as a subcategory of medical errors is not new. Back in 1999, so 20 years ago now, the Institute of Medicine published a large report that at the time was shocking and showed just what the scope of the problem might be. In the ensuing 20 years, it feels like we haven't made too much progress. Is that an inaccurate perception? And what kind of progress is there going on in the form of better diagnosis? So this is a tricky problem. You've got two competing things going on. On the one hand, when the National Academy of Medicine's report came out to Air as Human, it focused attention on the problem that in a way that we would hope it would, which is to try to solve problems. But at the same time, it also put a spotlight on the issue so that we started looking at it more. And what tends to happen in that situation is that you've sort of lifted up the rug to see what's underneath there. And you actually start realizing over time, as you pay more and more attention to these issues, that there are actually more harms than you realize there were to begin with. So what's probably happened and what appears to have happened over the, over time is that it's not that we haven't really made progress. There are areas of patient safety in which we have made progress, very clear progress, which I'll mention in a moment. But at the same time, 
we've been discovering new kinds of errors that we're making. And so the numbers still feel like they're growing rather than shrinking. So the areas where we have really made progress are around things like wrong site surgeries uh, and leaving foreign bodies in patients during surgery or medication errors based on handwriting defects and the area of catheter line sepsis and other healthcare-associated infections. We've actually seen some significant gains over the course of the past two decades that has saved tens of thousands of lives, uh, maybe cumulatively hundreds of thousands of lives or millions of lives during that time frame. However, at the same time, we've also started to realize that there are a lot of errors that we haven't been paying attention to. Chief among them are diagnostic errors. And this is an area that really only came to attention in uh, 2015 when the National Academy of Medicine uh, added a whole new report on the issue of improving diagnosis in healthcare. And it's only since then that we've started to see significant amounts of effort and energy placed in the direction of trying to tackle this even bigger problem than we realized was out there. This diagnostic error problem truly is the bottom of the iceberg of patient safety. And the other things that we've been dealing with were the obvious top of the iceberg, but now we've got an even bigger problem on our hands. So we've made progress, but we've also realized we've got a lot more work to do than we thought we did. Dr. Newman-Toker, your colleague, Dr. Horowitz, is a neurologist, as are you. And it seems to me that there are certain conditions where, you know, if there's a diagnostic error, it can be devastating. You know, heart, you know, if somebody's having a heart attack and it gets misdiagnosed as um, heartburn, indigestion, you know, that that's a disaster. But in particular, your field, your specialty, neurology, if somebody's having a stroke and it's misdiagnosed, that too can have devastating consequences. Has anything like that ever happened to one of your patients? Sure, absolutely. So um, as you know, Joe, uh, one of the areas that we study uh, here at Johns Hopkins is, is the issue of stroke misdiagnosis in frontline care settings. And we've shown that this is actually the leading cause of serious harms from vascular events. So more common than heart attack and pulmonary embolus and aortic dissections and the other things that people typically think of as cardiovascular diseases causing harm when they're misdiagnosed. Stroke is at the top of the list. I'll tell you a, a brief story. One of the patients that I've had the pleasure of working with was someone who um, actually called in and had some symptoms related to dizziness. And she actually herself thought that they were nothing, that they were related to medications. But when I spoke to her, it was clear from the story that she described that her symptoms didn't fit the pattern of medication toxicity. And I encouraged her to go to the emergency department. And so she went to the, the closest local emergency department to get evaluated. And I actually called them and told them what I was concerned about and Went, went through the discussion and they said, sure, we'll check her out. Uh, but I warned her, you know, please call me if they decide they want to discharge you because you need acute treatment for this to prevent you from having a larger stroke. And during that, uh, the course of that care, they did the usual things that are done in the emergency department for patients with dizziness, 
She got a CAT scan of the head uh, and she got a neurologic exam, a, a bridge though it may have been. And they concluded that she was fine and that her problems were due to medication toxicity, even though the story of her symptoms didn't match that profile. She'd taken the medications the night before, had not taken them that, that morning. She'd been fine when she woke up that morning and then her symptoms had come and gone twice. Much more the pattern of a transient ischemic attack or a pre-stroke. And I was concerned because she had a history of having what she said, quote unquote, strained her shoulder in the garden, that she had some neck pain, that perhaps she had damaged a blood vessel in her neck. And that was really the thing that I was most concerned about. But despite explaining that to the individuals in the emergency department, even after they'd evaluated her, and I said, look, this is why I'm concerned. She really does need to be admitted and treated for this until the testing can be done to confirm or refute that. They said, sorry, we don't think so. We'll call our neurologist. They quickly called him over the phone. I can only imagine how that conversation went. Uh, but they came back on with me and said, you know, we'll admit her as a courtesy to you, but we're not going to treat her. So I put, said, put her back on the phone. And I said, please come to Johns Hopkins. We admitted her. We diagnosed her vertebral artery dissection, a damaged blood vessel in the neck that would have put her at risk of having either a potentially lethal or even worse uh, a stroke that in the brainstem that could have left her in a persistent vegetative state or a locked in state, one of these horrific states where you survive, but you're um, and your thinking's intact, but you can't move or talk. And uh, she was treated. She did well. And afterwards, I, I reached out to the individuals at that hospital. And I said, look, would you like me to give grand rounds and explain how we approach this problem? And they said, yes. And I came and I gave grand rounds. And at the end of my talk, unfortunately, the conclusion was, well, occasionally rare stuff happens and, and you can't win them all. And we live in a world now where the time pressures and the, the push to just move people through in an assembly line fashion doesn't really lend itself well to the kind of nuance associated with diagnostic reasoning that's required to detect these, admittedly, you know, needles in a haystack. But there are ways to do so. And uh, you know, we're working on ways to make that expertise more broadly available and, and scaled. And so that's why Dr. Horowitz is such an important exemplar of how we need to bring that kind of expertise to the bedside and make it routine in clinical practice. You're listening to Dr. David Newman-Toker. He's director of the Division of Neurovisual and Vestibular Disorders in the Department of Neurology at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, where he's professor of neurology. Dr. Newman Toker is director of the Johns Hopkins Armstrong Institute Center for Diagnostic Excellence. After the break, we'll learn more about telemedicine and how it might help with diagnosis. You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is brought to you by Verizon Health Club. This comprehensive home testing service enables you to track crucial health markers of gut health, inflammation, metabolism, hormones, thyroid function, and many other organ systems. Regular testing can help detect health imbalances before they lead to illness. Online at Verizona.com. 
That's V-E-R-I-S-A-N-A dot com slash health dash club. Get 50% off the first month with the discount code PEOPLE50. That's P-E-O-P-L-E-5-0. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Carrie Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Cocovia Memory Plus, a supplement with 750 milligrams of cocoflavanols, the plant-based nutrients from fresh cocoa that help support memory. More information at cocovia.com. Also by Verizana, an analytical laboratory providing home health tests for hormones, gut health, and the microbiome now with an annual health club plan. Online at V-E-R-I-S-A-N-A dot com slash health dash club. How can you avoid being misdiagnosed? During the pandemic, healthcare workers are stretched to their limits. Telemedicine offers some opportunities, but also some pitfalls. We're talking with Dr. David Newman-Toker. He's the director of the Division of Neurovisual and Vestibular Disorders in the Department of Neurology at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. He's a professor of neurology there. Dr. Newman-Toker is the director of the Johns Hopkins Armstrong Institute Center for Diagnostic Excellence, as well as the immediate past president of the Society to Improve Diagnosis in Medicine. Dr. Newman-Toker, everything has changed because of COVID-19. A lot of patients are delaying routine medical visits. Uh, They may say, you know, I really don't want to go to the emergency department. It's one o'clock in the morning and who knows who else will be there. Um, They've become a little, shall we say, gun shy about interactions with health professionals and uh, many of them are now relying on telemedicine, either, you know, a Zoom meeting or a phone call with a nurse practitioner. And I suspect that uh, telemedicine doesn't always work as well when it comes to diagnosis as having a patient right there in front of you that you can do a, an actual neurological exam in, in your particular specialty. So can you tell us a little bit about practicing medicine during the pandemic, and perhaps tell us a little bit about your experience with telemedicine. Sure. Thanks, Joe. It's a, it's a great question. And I'll start just by with some of the data that relate to the, the point that you made initially. So it, it was a, a recognized sort of anecdotal phenomenon that patients seem to be a little gun shy about going to the emergency department, for example, with symptoms and Emergency physicians were reporting decreased volumes at the onset of the uh, outset of the COVID outbreak. People really seemed to not be coming in with symptoms other than those related to fever and potential COVID. And all of us started to worry that, in fact, patients were quietly sort of staying at home with non-COVID symptoms and diseases that might need acute treatment. And in fact, there was a New England Journal of Medicine article that looked at that issue and found essentially that stroke patients basically completely started staying home. They looked at very large-scale data about the use of imaging for stroke, and they saw that it plummeted around the onset of the COVID outbreak in the United States. 
so this was a very real phenomenon and not just something that was in people's imaginations. It, it was, it was measurably. So, uh, that potentially led to a lot of patients having, uh, rather than being seen when they had milder or earlier symptoms, essentially waiting until something bad happened, really bad, a worsening of their condition. And in many cases, probably uh, too late. So those diagnostic delays were probably quite significant. In the process, what many of us in medicine, including those in our group, started to try to do was to find ways to give people better access, both through routine telemedicine and other mobile-based technology tools. So telemedicine and remote access to care, uh, as you said, is not perfect. You are limited in what you can do in terms of uh, feel and touch, and you have to often have a patient who's cooperative and able to do parts of the examination for you. And there's some areas of medicine where that's essentially impossible. So for example, currently, it's almost impossible for ophthalmologists to look carefully inside someone's eye remotely. Uh, The best you can do is send them to a place where they can have a photograph taken of the back of their eye, and then that can be shared digitally with someone who's evaluating them remotely. Um, But you can't really do that in the home or in, in real live time. But for neurology, most of neurology many of the manifestations of disease are things that are outwardly self-evident. And really all you have to do is watch the patient over a video to see them. So you can see whether the patient can walk and you can see whether they can hold their arms out in front of them. And you can examine them in the way that you would in clinic, but just in the comfort and safety of their own home. There are parts of the exam, however, that require a little bit more than the usual access to bandwidth. So for example, in my field, which looks at the evaluation of patients with dizziness and differentiating inner ear disease causes from causes like stroke, we actually have a frame rate constraint associated with typical telemedicine interactions over laptop or or desktop computers. So what we've started to do is develop mechanisms where patients can video record their eye movements remotely on mobile devices and then transfer those securely to us for evaluation, which is very similar to what we were already doing in the emergency department beforehand by recording their eye movements in the emergency department and shipping them to specialists for evaluation to help the emergency department differentiate inner ear diseases from stroke when that expertise wasn't immediately available there. So I think this has been an incredible time, obviously trying for everyone, but one that has sparked an enormous amount of innovation in potentially a very positive way towards diagnosis, despite the constraints. Wow, that is so exciting. I have to tell you, you know, everybody these days pretty much has a cell phone, if not a computer. And if you could take a video of your eyes while you're doing some manipulation or exercise and then, you know, have an expert at Johns Hopkins look at that video and go, get to the emergency department now, you're having a stroke or you could be having a stroke. I mean, complete revolution. Uh, that's exactly how we're viewing this. And I think um, it, it really is an opportunity for not only for us to think 
how can we make things better during this pandemic? But how can we make care better for patients in perpetuity because of this pandemic? Dr. Newman-Toker, one of the problems that um, was apparent before the pandemic ever started and probably has not gotten better during the pandemic was the problem that a test might be ordered, the results might actually become available, and yet the patient may not be informed that there is a problem. What can be done about the difficulty of a a failure of communication when the healthcare provider, whether it's the doctor or a specialist or a nurse practitioner or whomever else ordered the test, just doesn't make that extra connection to make sure that the patient knows that this test had an abnormal result that requires follow-up. For sure. So uh, there are many examples of individuals, unfortunately, in our community who've suffered significant harms because they never found the result of a test. They never heard about it. And that is why the National Academy of Medicine in 2015, when they defined diagnostic error, had two parts to their definition. The first part being that the diagnosis needed to be timely and accurate. And the second was that it needed to be communicated effectively to patients. Because from a patient's perspective, if they don't get a timely or accurate or effectively communicated diagnosis, if any one of those three things falls through, they personally suffered a diagnostic error. They did not have an opportunity to benefit from whatever treatments might be available to help address their condition before it worsened or otherwise. So when you think about communication, it's critically important. However, it's not as simple as just saying, uh, well, doctors aren't really paying attention there. Uh, you know, they need to put more emphasis on communicating effectively and making sure that test results get back to the patients. There has to be a whole strategy, a systems type approach to dealing with the issue of closing the loop in test results reporting. And that's because the relationships among different providers are actually quite complex. Not only is everybody busy with hundreds and thousands of tests that are coming back at, at all times, but in addition, there's lack of clarity about who's responsible. So if a patient's in the emergency department and a test is obtained to look for one problem like pneumonia, but the chest X-ray done for pneumonia doesn't show pneumonia, the emergency department may no longer need to deal with that problem. But the radiologist might note the presence of a small spot on the lungs, a nodule that might indicate a possible cancer. Who's in charge of following up about that nodule with the patient? It might be the patient's primary care doctor, but the patient's primary care doctor might work in a different health system and not even know that the patient went to the emergency department, never mind that they'd had a chest X-ray that showed a nodule that said, please follow up with CT scan in six months. So conceptually, that closing the loop process requires a pretty dense set of systems-oriented solutions with multiple safety nets to prevent these kinds of things from happening. So even that area of diagnostic errors, which is important, um, it, it accounts probably for somewhere on the order of magnitude of, of 10% of diagnostic errors, and particularly in cases such as 
missed potential cancers, but occasionally with, with other things uh, such as uh, important radiographic findings that are more acute like those of Dr. Horowitz. And those kinds of problems really do, even though they seem like they're simple, do require concerted effort and changes to the whole way that we think about reporting architecture. One of the key things that's happened of late is that state legislatures have actually started to mandate and increasingly we're moving in the direction probably of of routine requirements at a national level to report test results to patients of critical tests, directly report to them so that it just sort of short circuits any problems in communication within the healthcare system and goes straight to the patient with a result of a test. So that is the direction that we are headed to try to prevent some of those problems in failure of communication. Dr. Newman-Toker, I play tennis with a a person who is very much tuned into risk management, not, not just in one medical center, but in many medical centers. And when I ask him about the issue of diagnostic errors and uh, mistakes and how we're improving, how things have changed over the last two decades, he says, well, you know, there are some hospitals that are fantastic, absolutely on top of things. If a mistake is made, there's an immediate apology by the healthcare professionals who are involved. Uh, you know, they do everything right and try very hard to make things better. But then there are the other hospitals and medical centers who send down the risk management folks to basically diffuse the problem to obfuscate and to pretend that nothing bad could have possibly happened. And, and I guess so the question is, how would a patient know if a mistake was made? How would a patient know that the hospital should be accountable and truthful when mistakes occur? Uh, because it's not always obvious. Uh, Dr. Horowitz was fortunate because he is a neurologist and he was able to share his experience. Most people don't have that level of expertise. So for sure, Dr. Horowitz had the, the good fortune of being a neurologist. And so he knew that the provider that was taking care of him hadn't done a thorough assessment for neurological conditions. And it is hard for a patient who lacks that medical training to be able to kind of glean that. I think increasingly what we've seen is that there's a movement towards greater disclosure, greater honesty, and more engagement of patients in the context where errors are made. But there still are those places that clam up. And I think what patients really need to do is look at the overall culture of the interactions and the experiences that they've had. I think that the places that open themselves up to dialogue and discussion, unlike the experience that Dr. Horowitz had, uh, those are the places that they, they should seek to get their care from and engage around because those are the places that are committed to improving the quality of care where they're willing to say, we made a mistake, um, let's try to fix it together. And those are the people that are ultimately going to provide the highest quality care to their patients. Dr. Newman-Toker, do you have specific recommendations that patients or their family members can put into action 
now, tomorrow, to help reduce the chance that they'll be the victim of a misdiagnosis? Yes. What I tell patients is this. There there's sort of three key things to do to protect yourself. One before a visit with a healthcare provider, one during and one after. The one before is to come prepared. So to summarize your symptoms on a piece of paper, less than one page, the timeline of events, so the provider can spend time thinking about your problem rather than gathering information. The second is to ask good questions and specifically to ask the kind of question like, doctor, you told me it was this benign thing. What's the worst thing it could be? And why is it not that? That will force the doctor to frame it for you. And if you hear them say, oh, something dismissive, sound like they're not paying attention, just give it a second opinion. And the third is after you leave that encounter, you need to remain vigilant in order to be sure that if symptoms don't get better with the treatments that have been recommended, that you consider the possibility that you might have the right treatment for the wrong diagnosis rather than just the wrong treatment. So come prepared, ask good questions, and remain vigilant. Dr. David Newman-Toker, thank you so much for talking with us on the People's Pharmacy today. Thank you, Joe and Terry. You've been listening to Dr. David Newman-Toker. He's the director of the Division of Neurovisual and Vestibular Disorders in the Department of Neurology at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Dr. Newman-Toker is professor of neurology there and director of the Johns Hopkins Armstrong Institute Center for Diagnostic Excellence. He's also the immediate past president of the Society to Improve Diagnosis in Medicine. Lynn Siegel produced today's show, Al Wadarski engineered, Dave Graydon edits our interviews, B.J. Lederman composed our theme music. The People's Pharmacy is a co-production of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC. This week we apologize for the sound quality of the interviews. We recorded them in our home studio and encountered some technical difficulties. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Verizona, an analytical laboratory providing home health tests for hormones, gut health, and the microbiome. Online at V-E-R-I-S-A-N-A dot com. Now with a monthly health club plan. And by Cocovia, offering plant-based nutrients in the form of cocoflavanols for brain and heart health. Online at cocovia.com. To buy a CD of today's show or any other People's Pharmacy episode, you can call 800-732-2334. Today's show is number 1,239. That number again, 800-732-2334. Online at peoplespharmacy.com. When you visit the website, you can share your thoughts about today's show. You can subscribe to our podcast through your favorite podcast provider. We post it on the website on Monday morning. At our website, you can sign up for our free online newsletter to get the latest news about COVID-19 and other important health stories. In Durham, North Carolina, I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next week.
Thank you for listening to the People's Pharmacy Podcast. It's an honor and a pleasure to bring you our award-winning program week in and week out. But producing and distributing this show as a free podcast takes time and costs money. If you like what we do and you'd like to help us continue to produce high-quality, independent healthcare journalism, please consider chipping in. All you have to do is go to peoplespharmacy.com slash donate. Whether it's just one time or a monthly donation, you can be part of the team that makes this show possible. Thank you for your continued loyalty and support. We couldn't make our show without you.